That means that right. veteran, a disabled veteran that served our country, would be manipulated tens of thousands out of margin and rate that they should have gotten otherwise. Now, number one, we hold the lender accountable. That's why the rates are lower and they have to compete, right? But more importantly, if we were to increase the rate, all that margin would go to the veteran. It wouldn't go to us. It can't. And that's the thing that drives me nuts is that how are people not seeing this? Even originators aren't seeing this, but like, that's why we have to educate consumers and veterans on how and why to shop for your loan and not be sold. Because if you're sold or steered by a real estate agent and you're not doing your own due diligence, you're going to pay a significant amount more. And honestly, many times with a less qualified group of people to do your loan. The most inspiring stories from today's most successful mortgage brokers. Join your host, Scott Peckford, on I Love Mortgage Brokering. Hey, Broker Nation. Scott Peckford here. Today on the show, I have Andy Harris. He is a mortgage broker based just outside of Portland, Oregon. One of the top guys in his state. He's on the Scotsman's Guide for funding $116 million last year. 330 files, which, you know, compared to some markets, his number would even be bigger if he lived in, say, California somewhere. In any case, the business was 33% purchase, 67% refi. He's currently switched to, obviously, a purchase business like most of us have. And this is a very interesting conversation. So a couple things we covered, the difference between a mortgage broker and what Andy calls a hybrid mortgage broker and how a hybrid mortgage broker can have be unduly influenced in the loan selection process, as well as there can be differences in pricing between wholesale and retail. It's very interesting from a technical perspective, why he believes that mortgage industry is more of a recruiting industry. And he's got some very valid points on this and how he helps his clients shop for a mortgage instead of selling them a mortgage, which I think is very interesting. And I know another guy, James Lowen, if you want to listen to an interesting podcast, I feel like him and James are kindred spirits, one in Canada and Andy in the US, of course. In the Ask the Expert segment, I talked to Tom Hall about three tips for choosing software, new software, whether it's CRM or whatever, and just some things to think about. I think it's a great conversation. Before we jump into that, I want to give a shout out to our title sponsor, Finmo. Finmo is a Canadian mortgage application, document collection, submission platform designed specifically for Canadian borrowers and brokers. Very, very easy to use. It's got some cool features baked right in, one of them being smart docs. So as the person's filling out the app, it's like, oh, you're self-employed. Here's what we need to get from you. Then when you get the application, you figure out what to do with it. It's connected to Lender Spotlight, so you can search all the rates and guidelines, find the right solution. And then before you hit the submit button, two things happen. One, it says, hey, you're sending it to the Lender ABC. Don't forget these policies. And again, the whole purpose is to save you time. This is not invasive. It's actually extremely helpful. So it does that. Plus, it pulls all the key data points from the application and puts them into the notes. So your lender underwriter doesn't have to go look for them. Go check them out at lendesk.com slash Finmo and schedule a free demo and check out this conversation I have with Andy. Hey, Andy, welcome to the show. Uh, thanks for inviting me. Hey, man. So tell me a little bit about yourself and your business. Yeah, so I've been originating for 20 years now, this year. And when I first got into business, I started on the retail side for a few years. And after that, kind of opened myself up to more of a macro view and got into the independent side. I'm one of the crazy guys that actually started my independent mortgage broker back in 2007, prior to the financial crisis, kind of seeing what was coming. So we kind of took things head on when people kind of fled from what was happening. And so we've been... Uh, you know, blessed to be profitable every month and quarter since 2007. So we're celebrating our 15-year anniversary actually next month. So you didn't actually so pay a lot of be, being a broker at that because a lot of people left. There was like a mass exodus from being a mortgage broker. Am I yeah. correct in saying yeah. that at that time? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, it was over half the volume in the industry and it went down to 7%. I think a lot of what it was was that, you know, I'm all about data and analytics. So I really look at what's currently happening and what's coming. 
And my biggest concern at the time was the products and what was going on in the industry. And just as we know, the quality of originator that attracted the wrong parties, you know, bankers, brokers, everybody was to blame, but primarily Wall Street with the products that were being released. It was just reckless. And so when I saw that happening, wholesale wasn't an issue. Wholesale was great because it gives more options for the consumer and, you know, more competitive terms and everything else. So we saw that as an opportunity. And I was a little shocked by, you know, how low the percentage got. But you have to think of it from, you know, I view this industry as a recruiting industry that happens to do mortgages. So if you look at it from a retail lender standpoint, some of which even have a wholesale channel, it was a huge opportunity for them to use, unfortunately, fear-based, you know, recruiting to net branch these people. We know net branches was a huge growth at the time and recruit all these people over to retail because, hey, if they don't have to compete for the loans wholesale, they can make more margin retail. And so a lot of people got out of the business, the people that stayed in, and most of them went to retail for multiple reasons, you know, fear primarily, net branch, all the things that they felt like they needed to do. We looked at it the exact opposite. It was an opportunity that, you know, nothing changed really, right? So I think I started writing in 2009 about the future of wholesale and correspondence. And everything I started writing about, I published about every year through different trade magazines. I said, guys, all this stuff you're hearing is not happening. There's still a wider range of investors. Everything's great. So whatever you're hearing is not correct. And we knew there was going to be a shift back, which has, of course, occurred. You know, the one thing we didn't want to happen is, you know, to change what we do, which is be true independent fiduciary originators, meaning that lenders are a business partner. They're not an employer. And our job is to shop and compare those lenders. You know, we got kind of a weird hybrid thing going on where people are using the term broker today. But they're not. They're not. Okay. Yeah, actually, I want to touch on this. I think this will be a good. Kind yeah. of so define a mortgage broker versus the sort of hybrid that I've seen a lot of when I talk to originators. Maybe explain that. So somebody who yeah. doesn't understand it, they'd get it. Yeah. So you know, the most important thing to understand with residential mortgage loans in the United States is how they work, right? We've got the primary and secondary market. We've got Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, Ginnie Mae, all these loans, the majority of all these loans. With, you know, you got your investors for Jumbo or whatever else. The lender is a logo. It's a logo passed through to the agencies that back and buy these loans. So if you have XYZ lender, is it really a lender? Okay, so if I went to my bank and I got a line of credit, an actual depository, if I got a line of credit and said, Andy's home loans, and I gave you a loan and told you I'm a mortgage banker or I'm a bank, you wouldn't think I am because I'm using a line of credit, in this case, warehouse lines and everything else. So if the lenders can't sell it to the agencies, right, Fannie, Freddie, Unconventional, Conforming, or Ginnie Mae, FHA, VA, USDA, all these different things, if they can't get it guaranteed, insured, or backed or purchased by these agencies, they're not going to close it, right, with the exception of those that retain it in portfolio for Jumbo and some of these other whatever, non-QM, whatever you want to call it different investors. So the majority of loans that are done today are agency-backed based off the way our country provides liquidity for housing. So as a broker, as an independent originator, you look at lenders as logos. That's what you do. They're a pass-through to what you're trying to get to. So if I have a consumer that I'm supposed to act as a fiduciary and represent that is looking for a Fannie Mae 30-year fixed, my job is to actually have a universal pricing engine where I compare every wholesale lender I'm approved with and not only shop on the execution piece of it, meaning if I'm going to send a loan to this lender, it's required they have good service, they close on time, the execution is there. I look at their loan servicing, do they retain servicing, do they transfer servicing? That can all change, obviously, too. But the rates and fees matter. That's part of our job. Our job is to secure rates and fees that are favorable for our clients because it matters to the consumer. And so, you know, on the wholesale side of things with an independent broker, if you're compliant with 
compensation laws that were passed in 2010 with the Fed and then the CFPB finalized through Dodd-Frank in 2012. The nice thing about being an independent broker is the company, I don't necessarily agree with this happening, but this is why it's transparent. The actual mortgage broker company is defined as an originator under TILA, meaning the Truth in the Lending Act, meaning that your wholesale lender compensation, so the compensation that the wholesale lender pays the brokerage as an origination fee, has to be the same with every single wholesale lender you work with. So what that means is when you're looking at an independent operation that is using a universal pricing engine, no matter where we go, we can't manipulate the margin and the rates, and we serve the consumer first. Now, on the retail side, as we know, where there is no regulation on the actual creditor or the lender, they can manipulate that service release premium on the rate sheets so their employees don't see it. Not only do we see it, but we hold everyone accountable and any additional incentives go to the borrower. So you have to be compliant with compensation. You have to be compliant with anti-steering. You can't steer the consumer to any product type for any compensation or incentive. You'd also violate comp. That's not the same way on the retail side. The originator can't be paid more or less, but their company can be manipulating the margin and the pricing. And so, I see. yes. So the biggest thing people need to know about true independent brokering is that if you go to a broker and you see they're sending all their loans to one or two lenders and they're approved with 30, right? The question is you have to go back and say, why? Okay, if you have that lender and they start pulling data, how can you claim to be an independent broker? You shop your clients when you're essentially acting as like, a net branch of a wholesale lender or not truly being a fiduciary and shopping. Because again, there's nothing wrong with supporting good business partners and sending revenue or people that can execute well and everything else. But if the pricing's not there, if you go to your client and say, Hey, I can go over here and close it a week faster, which may or may not be the case, but it's going to cost you $6,000 more. 100% of consumers would say, no, thanks. I'll take the week. I'd rather make $6,000 in a week. But you have to judge every lender and rate every lender based off execution, pricing, technology, everything, right? It's constantly changing. And that's what people have to understand. You know, being in this business 20 years, I've seen about everything with every lender. I've seen so many lenders go out of business. I've seen so many mergers, acquisitions. I've seen some lenders look great. All of a sudden, something changes and they look terrible, like when, you know, QM passed and, you know, maybe it might be a CD process. So you have to be very nimble where you can make changes very quickly and you can adapt to any market climate that we face fully by just being independent, you know, not being captive by any entity or any lender. You know, we just focus on the consumer and veteran is what we do. Right. So a question for you on that. So I'm sure you must've written articles on this or something because there's a quite a bit of uh, or have you done anything on this that you shared in the mortgage community? Oh yeah. Yeah. For, like I said, over 15 years, I've been involved with multiple publications for a long time and, Last few years, I've stepped out a little bit of that, but, you know, I went to Washington, D.C. for, what, six or seven years through Dodd-Frank, meeting with, you know, any congressional leaders. You know, we went with, I was on, a, obviously, an NAMB executive director for a while, and, you know, I ran OAMP here at the Oregon Association of Mortgage Professionals as president from, I think it was 10 to 12. So I was more involved with primarily when these regulations went through on Dodd-Frank, so it gave me a different insight on things. On the compliance piece, the compliance piece is really important because, there's a lot of variables that impact how we operate today and operate efficiently. But yeah, as far as the future of this channel and how this channel is supposed to be operated, I've been heavily involved with that, you know, primarily through all that period. So you touched on something, because I'm based out of Canada. We got lots of American listeners. And so I talked to lots of guys like yourself, but just so I'm clear, you said something, the compensation has to be the same from all. So if you have 30 lenders on that list, 
there is a consistency in compensation or is that what you said? Yeah, yeah. So the Fed had passed, as you can understand, there's a lot of regulations that weren't in place that caused a lot of the issues that a lot of consumers faced and everything through prior years. But back in 2010, the Fed had created these rules where they said, hey, listen, if you're a mortgage loan originator, you cannot manipulate the rates or the terms of that loan and get paid more, right? And that's what was happening. You'd have originators say, hey, I'm going to charge this person a quarter more rate, and it's going to go in my pocket. They're not going to understand or see it. That's not okay. And so they passed rules where compensation was regulated to where that couldn't occur. And then, you know, with Dodd-Frank, they, you know, created the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau that finalized those rules in 2012, basically defined exactly what an originator was and how they could or could not be paid based off the terms or a proxy of the term of the loan. In this case, what independent mortgage broker companies had called out, which is different from other channels, is the actual broker entity, the company, is defined as an originator, not just the loan originator themselves. And so, you know, the transparency that produces is if you go to an independent broker and they have 20 lenders, you know, if you are shopping for something, if they have lender A and they went to lender B and they charged you a higher rate, they can't be compensated more. That margin in that higher rate, no matter what lender they go to, has to go to the consumer, right? They also have anti-steering requirements. So as an independent broker, we have to comply with anti-steering, which is also combined with that, which means I can't steer this consumer to one lender or a different lender based off anything that benefits me or anything that might harm the consumer. And so you have to document anti-steering. You have to show, you know, lowest rates in which they qualify, those with the lowest origination fee, those without risky features such as adjustable rates and giving all the options. So the broker is required to present options that favor the consumer and not the broker as well as complying with that compensation, which goes hand in hand. So that's why it's a lot different from the retail side of things where you've got a lender that employs the originator. That lender can actually manipulate the margins and the rates and the rate sheet, but they can't pay that originator less or more. So the originator may not be able to influence the borrower for their own financial gain. Their employer can through the originator. I see. Yeah. Okay. So that's very interesting. Okay. That was very informative for me. So I'm sure there's other people that listening to this will be like, oh, I didn't realize that's how it worked. So before we yeah. dive into the rest of your kind of story, I'll always like to ask about a quote that's had an impact on your life or business. Can you share something that's really had an impact on you? Yeah, yeah. One that kind of stands out to me, we had this hung on our office kind of when we started our business just because we have a lot of people that have a lot of rhetoric in our industry. They talk a lot. So we just said, well done is better than well said, which is just a Benjamin Franklin quote, which basically just, you know, is what we kind of stand by on. Hey, you know, it doesn't matter what you say. It's all about what you do, especially when no one's looking. And so that was one. The other one that kind of stood out too was success is not final. Failure is not fatal. It is the courage to continue that counts. That's Winston Churchill. That's just basically saying that, you know, when you succeed, you hit a certain milestone. That doesn't mean that, you know, you don't stop going, right? Yeah, yeah. you're not done. Yeah, you fail along the way too, but failure is part of learning that, you know, and you learn from big and small failures and that's what keeps you going, but you definitely have to keep going and fight through it especially in this business, you know? So I like that well done is better than well said. And so how do you apply that specifically to how you run your business or how you run your shop or something? I'm curious. Yeah, well, I was born with a family that, especially a mother that ingrained in me just uh, deep, deep analytical integrity. I'm a very math and facts guy. We always say the term math and facts. I don't use any emotion or sales or rhetoric because that's the majority of this industry. So every decision we make is based off math and facts. And so we collect data and what we do when we perform and how we behave, just how our, our business operates is from that integrity, ethics, and math and facts that we've been known for. That's what we put out there. We put out 
all the data to the consumer, let them do research. We don't sell people into debt. We persistently educate people using, again, only math and facts. The reason why I like the quote is just because, again, it's all about your performance. Are you actually following through and do you have mission statements and things that support you know, what your cause is? Or are you just like everyone else and just selling something or you know, going out there and just spewing stuff that isn't supported by data, you know, facts? And you know, that's just kind of why I'm not a big fan of the retail side of the business is because if you're an originator, you're captive to a lender. Many times that lender might have given you some kind of bonus or bribe to work there. You have to sell that company and sell whatever price they're telling you to sell. But this is debt people are taking on. I look at it the opposite way, which is I know how the agencies work. These lenders are just pass-throughs to the agencies. I'm not going to sell or work for a lender. I'm going to work for my client, and I'm going to educate them. I'm going to use persistent education and facts and data and math versus upselling someone at a quarter percent of rate so I can pay my non-producing branch manager or something like that. Like that doesn't that doesn't work for me. Um, it might be a long-winded explanation, but that's kind no, of that what, makes a lot of what, sense. Uh, so you actually yeah. touched on something I want to ask about. So when you present to a client options, you come back with, "Hey, thanks, you reached out. Here's your mortgage." Do you actually show them multiple mortgages and then explain the pros and yeah. cons and then help them through the selection process? Walk me through that. I'm curious because yeah. yeah. that's what I'm thinking Absolutely. you're touching so, on. Yeah, yeah. So like today, for example, things are a little condensed on products, right? So if someone's going to buy a house here in the United States and you're looking at, you know, I've got a qualifier for conventional conforming loan. Generally, someone knows like, you know, we'll look at different amortization terms, you know, a 30-year term, a 20-year term, 15, 10, whatever their payments are really their factor they're focused on. So if they are like, Hey, you know, the 30 year I'm kind of leaning toward because that's just payment budget is what's going to meet my needs right now. I know the lower terms can save on interest and maybe lower interest rates, but I just can't afford the payment. So we first go through kind of the amortization of the term. So once we know the term, let's say it's a 30 year fixed, right? If the adjustable rate loans are off the table, which they are kind of right now, because the margins don't make sense. And we narrow and focus on the 30 year term, then we're going to analyze the rate sheet. So we actually send the consumer the full rate sheet because the way, you know, the bonds and mortgage-backed securities work is there's never a such thing as one interest rate. And this is the biggest failure I think most originators have. There's multiple rates for the consumer to choose from, which change daily until it's locked. Every rate has a cost or credit tied to it, right? So mm-hmm. if you're a consumer and you're looking at a rate sheet, we usually will, you know, compare a few out and say, okay, like here's a rate, for example, that has zero points, meaning I'm not buying my rate down through discount points and I'm not getting lender credits by increasing my rate. Here's another rate that has maybe half a percent or 1% in discount buy down. Here's another rate that has maybe half a percent or 1% in lender credit. And we do the analytics on the recapture math, which is if I'm going to pay, let's say, you know, 2000 or 3000 more for an eighth in rate or whatever the difference is, does it make sense on my monthly payment to do so based on how long I plan to keep that loan? Sometimes it's speculation. You don't know if you're going to refinance a loan. You don't know if you're going to sell. Sometimes people just don't know. But when you look at that math, it gives the consumer the choice and the education to say, based off looking at all these rates, it looks like this one makes the most sense for me. Because, hey, if I'm only going to stay here for you know, a year, that's my plan. I don't want to buy my rate down. You know, I want to get these letter credits. I can, you know, for an eighth in rate, if I'm getting 2,000 in letter credits, I can cover some of my closing costs or maybe all my closing costs. Otherwise, I'm only saving 23 bucks a month. I'd rather have that credit because I'm not going to make up the difference in 12 months. So these are all the things we do to analyze not just the product, which we narrow down the product when we discuss those products, but then the actual rate sheet and the terms 
and what's optional for them. And so that's why we don't like lenders to manipulate that because many times what you'll see happen is, you know, the consumer will be just quoted one rate from a lender randomly or the lender is manipulating the margin in that rate. I can give you a really quick example of this when we talk about the whole retail wholesale thing. Sure, yeah. We had a veteran buyer, disabled veteran. This is what makes people nuts. And I actually shared this with some of our Congress people in DC. We had a disabled veteran using their VA benefit. Now the VA benefit is backed by Ginny May. So Ginny May is a government agency that guarantees this benefit and they set the terms. Everything as we know is approved by a computer system. So the veteran was steered to a retail lender by their real estate agent. Now that real estate agent may or may not have had an illegal kickback relationship with that lender. I don't know, but for some reason they didn't refer several lenders as they should as a fiduciary responsibility by the agent. We know that doesn't happen. And so they set a loan to this company. Now, I got connected with the veteran by, I think it was out-of-state referral from a colleague, and the lender they were approved with, I said, well, if you just want to see something interesting, why don't we go ahead and compare this retail lender against their wholesale price, okay? So we are approved with the wholesale division of the same lender. I said, so this same exact lender is going to the same exact place. So you have the same lender, same Ginny Mae back VA benefit. I said, there's a couple differences. One, I'm a business partner. I have expectations of them. So they have to perform. If they don't perform, I click a button, I go somewhere else, right? I have all these different investors. So because of that relationship, they work with me and for my client, in this case, a veteran, versus me as their employee. If I'm an employee of theirs and I have a bad experience, I got to change my resume. I got to notify my database. I'm going to change everything. And that's just difficult, right? So I said, because of that relationship, I can get them to move faster. I can get underwriting to do what I need them to do. If they don't do it, they're going to lose business, right? If I'm an employee, that's not how that works, right? So the closings will be faster based off data. The team, in my opinion, wholesale lending has the most experienced people in the mortgage industry. I believe that's a fact, but I'll say it's an opinion based off my 20 years. So because, again, you're looking at a macro industry. If you're a wholesale lender or in the wholesale space as like an account executive, these are all these business partners we have. We don't pay them. They're like coworkers of ours that we don't pay. They're all just there to compete for our business and give us value and give our clients value. So I said, if we go to the same place right now, we can close faster, better, and quicker, plus nothing against this retail person, I'm much more experienced with them. Now that's one factor, right? The other factor is the one that drives people crazy. The interest rate on that loan, exact same lender, exact same Ginny Mae VA thing, 1% less, 1% in rate on that government loan. The reason for that is because retail lenders go after government margin on VA and FHA rates and they take that margin and the employees don't see it. That means that right. veteran, a disabled veteran that served our country, would be manipulated tens of thousands out of margin and rate that they should have gotten otherwise. Now, number one, we hold the lender accountable. That's why the rates are lower and they have to compete, right? But more importantly, if we were to increase the rate, all that margin would go to the veteran. It wouldn't go to us. It can't. And that's the thing that drives me nuts is that how are people not seeing this? Even originators aren't seeing this, but like, that's why we have to educate consumers and veterans on how and why to shop for your loan and not be sold. Because if you're sold or steered by a real estate agent and you're not doing your own due diligence, you're going to pay a significant amount more. And honestly, many times with a less qualified group of people to do your loan. And that's just reality. Ah, that's very interesting. Okay. So did you end up taking that client or what happened with that client? Was it oh, already yeah. funded? Yeah, we, oh, no, no. The good thing is some of these we get at the beginning stages that hard part is we get connected to them when they're a week from their closing, their appraisal's already been done and all that. This one was near the beginning. So we basically just updated and had that lender. Many times what happens is we just notify the seller and have the pre-approval letter changed to us. And then we close it and we slam that one through and saved them 
it was actually over a percent in rate because the rate was a percent less, but the actual cost was also less. So, right. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. It's a story yeah, we have. This, I mean, the games yeah, people just, play, right? Yeah. The games well, that it, some people, some it, people play. It's just education, right? I mean, the majority of the industry, to be honest, but it's just education. If the originator acts as a fiduciary and gets self-educated, they start learning more about like, wait a minute, they're not sold by a lender, right? If you work for a lender, you got to sell it because that's where you work, you know, and it's not easy to move. And it's, you know, change is something people have to understand too, but there's just so much heavy rhetoric on that side, because like I said, this is a recruiting industry that happens to do mortgages. Imagine you're a retail lender, right? And you have loan officers. Well, if you're a retail lender, you have underwriters and warehouse lines and operations and overhead. If you lose the originators, right? And let's just say you're left with processors, branch managers, non-producing underwriters and overhead and office space. If you don't have loan originators, what are you? Are you a lender anymore? Probably right. not, right? You can't lend money because you don't have any licensed originators. So you will fight tooth and nail and give crazy, they call them bonuses, but they're bribes. You know, you see like, hey, come to our company. We'll give you $100,000. It's a bribe. Why would you need to pay someone to work for your company if it's so great? And then sign all these agreements like you can't do this, you can't do that. This is our database. Like they're trying to captivate the originator. The originator was never supposed to be working for the lender. They were supposed to be working for the consumer and veteran. Things got flipped upside down for a long time. It's coming back the other way. The only challenge we see now is they're still being kind of manipulated by maybe wholesale lenders are not getting educated as an independent originator and actually shopping and having all the lenders they need access to. And then, of course, the compliance piece of it. Some are getting misinformation on compliance and not understanding compensation reform and how that happened because nothing has changed since 2012 and people are acting like it has. So I think we're going to see a lot of enforcement come from the CFPB and other entities as we move forward now, now that you know they have time to hunker down and look at that. It's just been a weird time with COVID and everything being shut down, you know? Right, right. Interesting. Okay. So let me ask you about, you've been in business 20 years and what's something that you failed at, but now looking back, there was a lesson in it for you. Yeah. I think one of the things that comes back to me is like when I first started my company in 2007, number one, I was going after the issue and, you know, kind of seeing things coming that were not favorable economically with the whole housing crisis. But I think I scaled too fast. I think what I did was we were very conservative on office space as far as size, but I had like, you know, I had 10 workstations set up. I had all the computers, all the different stuff. And that was a mistake because what I learned was number one, it's really hard to get good people in this industry, especially during that time, taking on any overhead for any reason, especially computers that are outdated within a year. It wasn't necessary. It was something where it should have been like, hey, maybe add one good human at a time versus like scale out and try to fill seats with people that don't produce it. So I learned that pretty quickly. I learned that very early in my career, which was you need less good humans doing quality production with the best systems and technology you can get. It's quality over quantity, basically. There's still a lot of people today that don't get that, which is they get all these originators that, number one, they can't manage the reputation. So they have maybe some bad reviews. They've got you know a system that's broken. They've got people that aren't trained well. They don't have the right culture. And a lot of them are little to no producers, right? It's just not what it should be. The way we've always looked at it, and as I kind of mentioned to you, over half of our originators are even on the Scotland guide list for volume because we take and create a system and a process with the best ops team we can get in technology to then work with and build, you know, the top originators that are just good quality human beings. You know, people that actually, the ethics, integrity, that's what's harder to find in this business because it just attracts a lot of people that aren't in it for anything but the money. And so it's hard because 
you get these egos. It's just like the real estate side, right? I mean, all originators that work with real estate agents know it's hard to find those agents that truly deeply care for their clients first. Yeah. A lot of them just have egos. Just It's all about them, you know? Right, right. So let me ask you this. Obviously, you know, scaling too fast, learn from it. The market kind of shifted on you. What's the best change you made to your business in the last 12 months? I'd say the biggest thing that we did, which was really smart. Well, it's not just me. It's, you know, I have really good team members that just had really, really good ideas. We put the paper, but we created like a company intranet site. It's basically a site that it's everything in one location, especially when everybody with COVID and people were remote, the Zoom calls, we needed a portal where everyone can get all the answers they need and resources. So we have like our full system broken down step-by-step, what everyone does, video tutorials, video trainings, every lender we have in there, every contact, product and pricing, we've got, you know, HR benefits, payroll, all this stuff. It's like in all in one internet site and everyone's roles and responsibilities. It'll show every who's responsible for what, at what section of the process and what technology is doing what. It's just been great because it's just been a very focused area where it's almost like, the future of what I kind of see everything going toward, which is how do we, you know, put all of our technology together in one area. And then every answer you can have is in that same area. Meaning there's no question. Everyone is fluid on the same page just to help things go through much faster and smoother. And if the file ever gets off the rails, you go back to the system and say, Hey, if you think there's something better, we can tweak the system, but the system works really well. And we've used it based off analytics and volume and data. And it's kind of just streamlined, right? So we've implemented that slowly over the last year, maybe two. And we actually had a team meeting about the roles feature of it too. So that's been great. You know, we've loved that. Okay. That's a great idea, actually, especially with the dispersed team. So what has been for you the source of your business in the last 12 months? Obviously, refis have changed significantly. That business is not where it was. So what kind of things have you done to adapt to that shift? Yeah. I mean, the last two years, obviously rates being the lowest level ever in history, which I don't think we'll ever see again, but just, we call it the unicorn years. That's a reactive year. So that's a year where, you know, all the low hanging fruit, like you said, on refis, it just reacted, right? So a lot of us got burned out and that just added to our volume. So a lot of people had high volumes and all that. So when the refis essentially, because we had the fastest, you know, inflation and increase in rates we've seen for a long time, in such a short period of time, it basically is going to dry up all the refis outside of getting cash out or divorces, things like I mentioned. So refis are gone. The proactive stuff is always purchase. You always focus on purchase. You always proactively market purchase. In my opinion, refinances you never market is just a reaction, right, to your database and your referrals. So now, yeah, it's like 95% purchase. That's the main focus. It's just a matter of whatever the volume is, how much market share you can get in your local market of that purchase business. So as far as the sources of business, we actually just went through this yesterday at our meeting, which I created a chart. We call it our vision, essentially. So it looks like a pair of glasses. So you've got two lenses and you've got kind of a connection in between the two of these glasses. One side of it's referrals. So like and we cut it up in pies. So you've got, you know, just imagine a pie chart of referrals on one side, which is, you know, past clients is our biggest. Realtors is a big one. CPAs, financial planners, divorce attorneys, friends and family influence, all that stuff is obviously referral based. You got to be proactive. You got to develop those relationships. You got to build and maintain those relationships, help people like agents with their own marketing because a lot of them aren't great at marketing, consumer direct stuff. So that's one side of it. And that's where most of my businesses, you know, past client referrals, colleague referrals, realtor referrals, and some financial planners and all that on the referral side. The other side of it on the other lens is consumer direct. And this is one where people lose a lot or they don't understand how important it is. We've always been a consumer direct company on top of referrals. I always use the joke of, 
if someone says they're 100% by referral, you know, Bernie Madoff said the same thing, and that's not always good, right? right. If you're 100% by, yeah, if you're 100% by referral and you can't develop consumer direct business, that means number one, you're not marketing right, or number two, your pricing's terrible. It's usually a combination of both. But consumer direct is huge because literally 100% of people, let's just say 95% of people, are online when they're looking for homes. The real estate's the fun part, the mortgage isn't, but when they're looking at real estate, they're looking online because it's all public data. Everybody's online. So if you're not in front of their face all the time trying to target those local people for a mortgage, then you're losing out on the majority of what is now prior and in the future, especially. So consumer right. direct could be broken up in multiple categories too. Obviously, some people are doing social media and all that, and that's part of that. But you've got to really understand SEO organically. You've got to understand, you know, pay-per-click. You've got to understand retargeting. You've got to understand you know, video, all the content you can be putting out there. And you got to really manage your website and the keywords and ways to get in front of the consumer and lead capture that can then develop not only the connection, but you're converting and following through to close and build, you know, that consumer direct business. So that's vitally important as it is with referrals are equally important. What percent of your business would you say is from consumer direct versus the other sources? You know, it changes every month. It's hard to say on a monthly basis, and that's something we've been tracking a little bit more. It is predominantly referral. I'd say some months it could be 50-50. Here's, let me add this to this statement because this is a bigger part. So the two glasses, as I kind of mentioned, the two lenses, what connects them in between is online reviews. So online reviews is an indirect referral. What it is is it's someone else that may not know somebody that is referring you indirectly as a preferred someone to use with an online review, assuming your online reviews are good, right? But positive online reviews is the most powerful thing anyone can do. They're free. They're publicly accessible by pretty much anybody. So if you have high SEO rankings and you're organically in front of people or you're using banner ads, whatever you're doing, when they research your company, because even if you're referred, people are researching you and your company, yeah, yeah. right? Yeah, 100%. Yeah. yeah, me as a consumer, whether I'm buying a product or service, I'm always looking at reviews. So that I would say the majority of when it comes to my business, it's hard to know because online reviews is a huge piece of that. So a lot of people that call or email me is because of the reviews. But the reviews, right. I, I combine the two because you don't know of, hey, was this review from a consumer direct person or was it from a referral? But either way, it's an indirect referral connecting the two. So right. that's my biggest thing is I tell any originator, especially those that are newer, number one, first get your friends and family in sphere knowing exactly what you do. You've got to be pushing for and giving the performance of the best five-star reviews you can get and publish those everywhere you can, right? And I think that's the most important thing. A lot of people make the mistake of publishing reviews and things no one looks at. Like they use these third-party sites that no one cares about. Like, no, you want to put them where people actually look, like your Google business page, right? Everyone's going to see your Google business page, or you should have that categorized and have that all set up, of course. Social media, whether it's all over any social media platform. Some people will put them on the other areas like, you know, your Andrew's List or Yelp or, you know, Better Business Bureau, whatever. A lot of times people can just share the same review in multiple areas, but you want to make it easy for the borrower. There are third-party companies that help you do that, or you can just have a template where you have links after closing and you thank them for the business. But yeah, I would say primarily referrals, reviews, still a lot of consumer direct, yeah. but then online reviews, which are a little bit harder to target, but that's a big one as far as call-ins and uh, emails and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree. Okay, so I have some rapid-fire questions. You can answer shorter answers if you like. What's one thing people can't find out about you from Google? Uh, they couldn't find. I would say, oddly enough, before I got in the mortgage business, I ran 
operations for a large fitness corporation. And I used to compete in bodybuilding, which was kind of interesting in training bodybuilders. Yeah. I won a bodybuilding show once. I don't know if that would be anywhere, but yeah. yeah if, if it was today, it would be all over the internet. It'd be like, you know, Instagram and, you know, 20 years ago or whatever. It's a little. <laughs> no, none of that. Yeah. None of that was around. This was back, man. My last show was 2000. One, I want to say. Yeah. So yeah, like, I don't even think I have video. It didn't nowadays. If it doesn't happen on Instagram, it didn't happen. You know, like these. Yeah, exactly. Um, what's a movie everybody should watch at least once? Because I'm from Oregon, and because it was filmed in Oregon, it's just a classic. Goonies. Oh yeah, I, actually, we stayed there on a Cannon Beach once. It was awesome. Didn't find yeah, a well, Cannon Beach. But... Yeah, Astoria is where it was filmed. So Astoria is north of Cannon Beach. Cannon Beach is really cool. There's a lot of rocks that look similar. Um, yep. like Haystack Rock, Proposal Rock, all that. But yeah, Astoria is a really cool town. Okay, it's actually, there you go. I didn't even know this. I thought I was like, this is where Goonies was filmed, but it was... Oh, yeah, no, no, no. It all kind of looks the same on the Pacific Coast, but yeah, especially in Oregon. But yeah, you can go to Astoria and actually see the Goonies house. Harder to drive close to it, but yeah, you can definitely, it's still there. Okay, and then you talked a lot about, you know, creating a great process. What are some of the tools that you use to do that? Because I got to imagine, you know, we talked about keeping the number of employees efficient. So can you share a couple of the tools you found to be very helpful for you? Yeah, I mean, the biggest thing is setting up your own system for your own company because every company is different size. Your company has different processes, but you have to have a very clear system that everyone follows that's been tried and tested and works. And that's a full operational system. You know, what the originator does, what the processor does, what you do pre and post-closing, all that stuff is vitally important for your own system. So it doesn't even matter what technology you add in if you don't have your own system set up first. Yeah. The other thing we do is we then add technology. So we've created all of our own milestone emails and also videos. So every video, every step of the process, the consumer gets our own custom videos we've created for them. So they know exactly where things are at. So we have all this branding and education and stuff, not just about the mortgage industry, but also when they're in the process of a loan, because we don't want to plug into a software and look like everybody else. We want to have our own right. custom created video content. So first and foremost is creating all your own custom stuff. And then you figure out what technologies you like i don't know what technology is going to be better in the future but right now we're using like a point of sale system we like flowify connected with LendingPad for loan origination software so those two integrated have worked really well for us i know there's other good ones out there too and i'm sure things will change even more in the future so as long as you have your own systems you can plug into these other systems you know you'll always stand out and be unique you know and it's going to help you and your team members regardless of what new technology comes because i'm sure things are going to look much different a year, two years, five years from today, I think a lot's going to look different in the industry, but technology-wise too. So as of now, we'll be as fluid as we need to with what bigger and better things come. But yeah, as long as we control those systems, that's the most important. Right. Yeah, I always say like you want to document your process on paper before you ever use the technology because some of it Correct. is going to be technology, some is going to be people. And too often people just start with the technology and then they actually haven't thought through the entire thing. So it's always better. And then you could swap in and out the technology, yeah. but having it documented like separately well, is the key. Yeah, you have to change the technology too because a lot of the technology is fine, but it has to totally be changed and customized. There's so much to change on it. And that's where, you know, you can't just rely on that. You've got to set your own systems. And like you said, not only have it on paper, but maybe in like an intranet or some kind of site that everyone can access to be very clear on what's going on. So what do you think is going to happen with rates in the next 12 months? What's your sort of best guesstimate? So because we've already skyrocketed on rates, as we know, you know, We've seen periods now in the last few weeks where they've come down, come up. It's really hard to know, as most people know. I think the biggest question is most economists predict we're going to see a recession. If we see a recession, and who knows when, a year or two years, whatever, 
recession generally will lower rates again, as most predict. So, you know, I, I would think as of right now, or how high rates have jumped just in recent months, I would say we've remained stagnant with the common ups and downs that we see every week. They could go higher. Some people predict that, but it's just hard to know. I mean, affordability is the biggest issue right now. We've got record low inventory and, you know, I have clients that were approved in January that you just sit there and do nothing. And your payment goes up 700 bucks a month. Right. I mean, you just right. you have to reset your budget. So affordability is a concern. You know, I know that obviously the Fed doesn't control mortgage rates, but I know they're going to be increasing rates, obviously, on the federal funds and prime rate. They're trying to get inflation under control, but they should have done that earlier. So I think a lot of it's going to come to what that's going to look like, how the markets react to whatever the Fed does, but also the recession issue that we see coming. A lot of that's going to play into what the rates might look like. And if they do decrease from anything like recession related, what that timing will be. So there's just a lot of unknowns. And I know a lot of business leaders are very concerned with the next couple of years look like economically, but overall I would lean towards stagnant with those pending unknowns, you know, just with the normal daily volatility, but. Right, right. That makes a lot of sense. Okay. So last question, if I could put you in a DeLorean, the car from back to the future, send you back to your first day as a mortgage broker and you could say, Hey, Andy, do these things. What would you tell yourself to do? Yeah. Well, I guess it depends on how much data I get. I would share data of things that were going to happen that haven't happened yet, which. Yeah. Well, then you'd be a very that. rich man right now. You'd be like, buy yeah, crypto yeah. this time, if buy, you know, Amazon. Okay. Yeah. But it can only be mortgage advice. You can't tell your, if it's you just, know. Yeah. But, if it's just advice, man, that's a good question. There's so many things I've done through my career that I've just been like lucky or blessed or whatever that I just predicted it right. That's really my whole thing I've done is just try to predict the next couple of years. But. I mean, there's certain things I would have changed on certain team members that we hired that we kind of gave a shot that was not necessarily a good choice. I would have certainly made some changes there on some suggestions. But overall, we've had some other great team members and that's really been- And, our, and some of it, honestly, you uh, can get through that learning, right? You can't, like, sometimes yeah, even the advice has got to be your own lesson. It's like, oh, now I get it. Yeah, it's, it's mine. Al- I care. Yeah, it's almost like if I didn't learn the lesson, whether it's good or bad, you don't make those changes. You don't going in that same or different direction, right? And I think my biggest thing is I just stayed so ahead of the changes and the regulatory changes and just being right on the front lines of it that, you know, that's what helped me. I think the issue today in the mortgage business is you have so many people that aren't on the front lines that are making decisions. They're just completely disconnected from reality. And that's where you have, like I said, the managers or the executives and people that they don't get what's going on and they learn late. And that's why we see so many companies come and go. Is because they're just not connected deeply to the street, to the consumer. Mm-hmm. Like analytically, how does this actually work? Like what's important? How do we get market share? How do we adapt to change? I mean, this is the biggest, it is massive change. You have a, you know, almost a $4 trillion or $4 trillion market get almost cut in half. You know, you can't scale on a $4 trillion market. Like you can't say, hey, rates are two and a half percent. Let's scale and just blow up and grow this. No, you got to look, this is peaks and valleys. It's always been that way. The industry I've seen so many companies do this where they overspend, overspend, and then all of a sudden the market drops and then they're sitting there like, oh, now we got to cut everything. It's like, guys, just slow and steady pace. You want to slowly and steady, almost just a nice, easy upward line, right? Not this all over I, the place I, thing. I read a quote it's, once from uh, it was a Navy SEALs. They say slow is smooth and smooth is fast. So, you know, when yeah, you're dealing with yeah. high stress situations, it's better to be, you know, slow and smooth. If you try to move too quickly, you make mistakes. And Absolutely. Yeah, you want long-term success. You know, there's so much about this winning and all this stuff. It's like, well, if it's short-term, like you want the long-term vision, the long-term success, the sustainable long-term thing where, you know, let's face it, we do home loans. Like no one cares about home loans, right? Like it's important. What we do is vitally important for the consumer. It's a huge financial thing. But at the end of the day, it's home loans. So like if you're an originator, 
that you have a family and friends and all the stuff that you live for, that's your life. Home loans is not your life, right? That's just to help, you know, as many consumers and veterans as you can, you know, do the right thing always and then move into what's important, which is your family and friends and life, right? But at the end of the day, yeah, it's home loans, right? So it's a great industry. It's a great business. But yeah, I think it's just one of those things where you always have to make sure you're self-educating and not being influenced by the wrong parties that are financially motivated by your beliefs, right? Right. That's awesome. Well, Andy, I really appreciate you taking the time to chat with me, man. I learned a ton. Where can people find you online? Vantage Mortgage Brokers, Vantage with a V, mortgagebrokers.com. There's a website, lots of great stuff there. But yeah, my uh, profile's there. If anyone has any questions, happy to connect. Okay. Awesome, man. Hey, thanks, Andy. Good to connect. All right. You too. Take care. All right. Hopefully you found that conversation enlightening as I did. I definitely picked up a lot of little notes. Being that I'm a Canadian guy trying to understand the U.S. market more, for me, there was a lot of stuff in there that I didn't know. And so if you're an American listening to this, you'd be like, Scott, you should know that stuff. Like, hey, I didn't. What can I say? Now I'm learning it. So I'm having a little bit of fun understanding the nuanced difference between Canada and the U.S. So in any case, I think Andy brought up some pretty valid points. In this next segment, I'm going to be talking to Tom Hall about three tips for choosing new software. Hey, Tom, welcome to Ask the Experts. Hey, Scott, great to be here. So, hey, what's the topic that we're going to cover today? Yeah, this is one that, that we get a ton all the time, and I think it's something that it's definitely worth sharing. And what it comes down to is, as a broker, what's kind of the framework? How do you think about choosing a new software? So, you know, maybe you see it online, maybe you see, you know, your team members, your colleagues talking about this amazing new tool how do you evaluate it for yourself? How do you kind of think through it? So I want to kind of lay out that framework a little bit for everybody. I love it. The way I think of this is like three questions to ask yourself when choosing a new software. Right. We were talking about this before, so let's jump into that. So these are like really three key things. If you're thinking about choosing a new software, whatever it is, you guys have Blue Mortgage, which is fantastic, but whatever the software, these are three things that you need to ask yourself. I think that's right. Yeah. Maybe I should have mentioned that. Hey, it's not just, you know, a CRM like Blue Mortgage. It's you know, how are you going to submit deals to lenders? How are you going to get meetings with your clients? How are you going to get your clients to sign documents? There's a ton of tools out there and each one requires a little bit of a decision, right? So these are kind of the questions that guide those decisions. So first and foremost, I think this really is maybe the most important one is what does this mean for your clients, right? Because this is a client-led business. And so when you are picking a new tool or a new software, what does this mean for them? And really, it comes down to kind of two components of that. Are they going to have to now do something different? You know, before, you know, if it was a longtime client or even a new client, they're expecting one set of activities to do. Now you're switching it up on them because you've introduced this new tool. So what does that mean? And then based on these new activities, what does that mean in terms of, you know, just the overall process in terms of how much they might have to do or how much time that takes or how costly it is for them to get it over the finish line. So that's a really important question because, you know, I bet a lot of brokers out there, you know, I hear the frustration where oftentimes it seems the client is the bottleneck. It can be the bottleneck. And so when you're asking those questions, if I'm going to introduce this new thing, am I making that bottleneck better or am I making that bottleneck worse? right? Right. So that's kind of the first one there. So yeah, I love this. So basically what you're focusing on and the question I think about when I think of what does it mean for your clients is, does it enhance the client experience, right? Exactly. We, we, yeah. I literally, before we jumped on this call, I was working with my ops guy or my automations guy and we're doing this onboarding as we bring on new agents. And so he's got all these cool things that happen. Right. And yeah. I'm like, how many emails is that going to be that we're sending them? He's like, I don't know. I'm like, somebody <laughs> can't join us and be like 25 emails later. They're going to be like, them. tap, yeah. I'm out. Like, what are you doing? So 
what we ended up doing is we looked at the tool through the lens of the client experience because you can automate everything. But mm-hmm. should you, do people want 15 emails from you or do they want one email or is it yeah, better with not. a phone call or should it be like, what is the yeah. modality that creates the least amount of friction? And so we ended up compromising on where it was partially automated. And then the second thing we're doing is an onboarding orientation call. So when a new agent comes on, we do a group call with them and say, okay, here's where everything is. Here's who these people are. Yeah. And I'm like, it needs to be both end. It can't mm-hmm. just be because they may not see it. We want to make sure that, you know, they feel supported. And I think it's a better customer experience. So, right. Um, no, I think that's the right thing. It's the friction, right? And yeah. friction can take a lot of things, but what's introducing friction. And I talked about it. Okay. It's going to help your process today, but also really helps for the next deal. Right. Someone can look yeah. back and say, that was a frictionless process. I want to work with that guy again, that guy or girl again. So it helps in both those ways. Yeah, absolutely. So, okay. First was, what does it mean for your clients? The second point you said was, what does it mean for your team today? So expand yeah. that a little bit for me. Yeah. And I want to, I mean, emphasize today. And so, you know, I'm sure you guys can maybe guess what the third question will be, but as it relates to today, I mean, I think as you're trying anything new, right, it doesn't just have to be a software. It could be a new process, anything, you know, a new thing that you're doing in the morning, everything has a transition, right? So understanding what does that transition look like is super important because there's, you know, we were just talking about friction is very important as it relates to your clients, switching processes, trying something new. There is a little bit of friction. So understand that transition for your team. team. Exactly. For you and your team. You've turned the other direction. Look at the team experience. Am I making them, you know, juggle chainsaws while walking a tightrope? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, And so that's, you know, one thing we got to look out for, but then also, you know, there's probably a reason why you're looking at this new tool in the first place. Okay. What are the quick wins? That's the lens I always look because a tool can have a thousand wins, but I always say, let's focus on the quickest ones, the ones that are going to have the most immediate impact because that's what gets people excited, right? If you have a team, you want to introduce this new thing. If you can show them that, Hey, by learning a new process that takes about 10 minutes to learn, you're going to save, you know, 30 minutes a day that gets people excited. That gets people wanting to use this new software and, the snowball begins, right? The snowball starts rolling. Identifying those quick wins are super important. So identify quick wins. And then the last question you had, so what does it mean for your clients, client experience? What does it mean for your team today? That's your team experience. And then what does it mean for your team tomorrow? So talking about that. Yeah, yeah. And so that one there, I think, you know, it's something that I think is top of mind for a lot of people. And I think really what it comes down to is, you know, not pigeonholing yourself. You know, something that I talked about, you know, a couple, I think maybe it was on this podcast a couple of weeks ago is that, you know, we've had this huge explosion of technology in the past five years and it's been great. And then I asked people, hey, what do you think the next five years are going to be like? Think it's be more or is it going to be less technology? And people are mixed reviews, but if you ask me, almost undoubtedly, there's going to be more right? We're on this exponential curve now of growth. And so there's just going to be more and more tools. And so even though you might say today, say, hey, do you know what? I'm going to choose this particular thing and lock it in. You know, you don't know what that means for you tomorrow. So the key with all of this, with more technology options and what you're choosing today is just be flexible, right? Keep yourself open. Don't pigeonhole yourself. And so have these tools in place that allow you to do great things today, but also explore this cool new tech that might come out tomorrow that none of us know about, but is going to you know, change the game or whatever it might be. So have that flexibility that allows you to take advantage of it. Right. So in a couple of ways you do that specifically is with, you know, your tool having integrations that allow you to like, mm. you know, yep. so if you're using say blue mortgage as an example, and you're tied into using Zapier tying into something and something better comes along, you can actually just swap out 
exactly. tool and use yeah. Zapier, Zapier for the next tool. So I, yeah, I I, what is it? Zapier, Zapier? I, I don't know. I, 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 it's <laughs> I tomato, go back tomato. I, I use both <laughs> all the time. And, and then yeah. the other thing that I think about with this is that a really smart guy that I know who's made tons of money in investment stuff tells me optionality. It's basically this idea yeah. that if you're stuck to a system or platform, then it can be, you know, you don't have the same optionality. So just think about what you're trading up on that or trading mm-hmm. for on that. Yeah, absolutely. That's a huge one for the, yeah, with the integrations, just exactly what you said, being able to say, hey, there's this new amazing thing for, I'm going to use the example of getting documents signed. Maybe you don't want to change your whole process. So having a very well integrated system, you can just swap that one piece in and out and then everything else stays the same. So integrations are going to be really important as we, you know, think about these new pieces of technology. Yeah, and, and tools coming more along. specialized. I think exactly. that I don't believe there's one tool to rule them all. You know, I think it's not like it's like not this, like the Lord of the Rings. No. Yeah, one tool to rule them all. It's like, no, no, what yeah. you need is like an electrician wouldn't have one tool with like, you know, all these different screwdriver, drill, voltimeter. It would start to get to be a clunky. It wouldn't be very good at any of those things. And so what I think as a mortgage broker, you need a tool belt of a, a small number of tools, but that are all specialized and that talk well together. That to me is the optimum because then if one of the tools breaks or whatever, you can replace it or so you need them to be able to connect, you know, but not be dependent on any one of those tools. That's just my opinion, though. Okay, so let's wrap up this call. So three questions to ask yourself. Why don't you do the recap on this without choosing any new software, CRM or insert any other? Go ahead. Insert anything else. Yeah, three questions that you absolutely need to ask yourself. Okay, what does this mean for your clients? How is this reducing friction or is it reducing friction? What does this mean for your team today? So what does a transition look like in terms of your internal ops? And what are some quick wins you can capture? And then finally, what does this mean for your team tomorrow? Are you staying flexible? Are you allowing yourselves to take advantage of that next cool tool that's going to come along and completely change the game? So are you flexible to that? And I think really, if you keep to those three questions, you're going to make really good decisions as it relates to your software. Right. That's awesome. So if you're listening to this, you can check out Blue Mortgage. At bluemortgage.ca, there's no E in blue. Tom no and his team blue. can help you out. We have started using blue to track all of our deals. It's actually, once we got through the setup process, so what does it mean today? There's a bit of learning, but it was fairly painless. And we have some automation built in. We could do more, but for where we're at right now, like we're like, hey, let's make sure we're happy with the process before we yeah. bake in any more automations. And so it's working very well. So check them out, Tom. Thanks so much, man, for coming on the show. Thanks, Scott. All right, so hopefully you found the conversation today with Andy and Tom to be enlightening. A couple of quick things, if you're a mortgage originator in Canada or the US and you're like, hey man, how do I get my business going? We have a cool thing called 10 Loans a Month Academy where we have some amazing coaches that will coach you on a very specific part of your mortgage business, whether it's building your team, generating leads, the people who have really mastered one aspect of the mortgage business. And these are all top originators. You can go check that out at 10loansamonth.com. Thanks again for checking out this episode. This is an I Love Mortgage Brokering production.